Hello and welcome to the channel. I'm your host for today, Claire Headley, and this is my next episode of Scientology Stories, in which we discuss stories of people and their experiences in Scientology, and hopefully along the way we educate you in the language and practices of Scientology. And as always, here's my important note. Whether you're currently in Scientology, a former Scientologist, or just curious about hearing these stories, the bottom line is Scientology does not want you to hear these. So thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for watching. And thank you for helping us to educate people on the true nature of Scientology. And with that, it is my great pleasure to introduce my guest for today, none other than Miriam Francis. Thank you so much for being here, Miriam. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on, Claire. It's an absolute pleasure. <laughs> I am just um, so grateful for your that that our paths crossed and for the incredible work you do. Do you want to talk about your podcast and what you've been doing there for a moment before we dive into your story? Yes. So um, earlier this year, with the um, beginning of the Danny Masterson trial, um, myself and um, a few other women who were raised in Scientology um, and had childhood experiences in Scientology, um, decided to create a podcast um, to talk about the issues like as they would be brought up, um, like certain terms and um, practices that may be brought up in the trial that we could lend our own experience to and explain in real terms, like what was that like? Um, and also, um, I think that we wanted to provide more support to the things that they were saying um, because we knew them to be true. And we just felt that more information could be provided and expanded on those things. And, um, and so that's what we did. So, um, and we did, I think about 20 episodes covering the Danny Masterson trial um, and including the victim impact statements and um, went and went to a lot of detail throughout um, the whole uh, trial and picking up all those little details and explaining those Scientology terms and experiences um, as as we had experienced them ourselves. Yes. So that was um, intended to be very informative. And I think that we did achieve that. Um, from there, what our next focus is, is um, focusing on the children's stories. So the um, kids who were either born into it or raised in, in it um, and did not choose it for themselves to, um, you know, I think, I think there's, a, there's still so much of that that's not been heard yet. And we want to provide a platform where those, those people can um, come and tell their stories. And um, yeah, and, and it's great because they do have a lot of places where they can do that. So we'll just be another one of those places that they can come to. And um, so that's our next thing that we're doing is the children's stories. specifically. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I've yeah. always, I've always said in this journey that my personal goal, as you know, I was also uh, brought into the C organization at four years old. And I've mm -hmm. always felt very strongly that the trauma of Scientology has so much, is so much more dramatic um, on the lives of mm -hmm. children. As you said, they had no choice. It was never like an option um, <laughs> to be dragged into this dangerous cult at birth or, you know, a as a young child and mm -hmm. the recovery journey and finding life outside of that is very, very challenging. 
Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, the um, alienation, the, the you know separation from self that occurs through the indoctrination of the Scientology upbringing, um, you know, being alienated from your own emotions and your own body and not being able to, um, you know, your connections to people are always um, sort of hanging by a thread because it, it always depended on how what your behavior was and what you did and um, in accordance with Scientology so and L. Ron Hubbard and that same you know that was the same for our parental relationships um, so you know not experiencing unconditional love but there was always conditions with any love that we might experience and there wasn't a whole lot of it um, so I think really the kids that grew up in this situation they became very strong people and um, they have a real uh, a real story to tell of what they went through and also just the relationships that they formed the bonds that they formed between themselves between each other um, that would have uh, added to the resilience of getting through those things together when you're separated from your parents and all that sort of thing and um those are the things that I feel really strongly should be shown as well. And, um, and I, I think as well, because I just like to get into the deeper details of things and the real humanness of things. Yeah. Um, you know, what did that feel like? What did that look like? And sort of really, yeah, break down those details. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. Hats off to you for yeah. incredible work and an excellent platform. I've no doubt it will be very successful. Um, yeah. But yeah, so let's dive into your story, if if you're good with that. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> and of course, we have lots of correlations because, um, again, you know, anyway, we'll we'll hit on those crossovers. But of course, I knew your mother, and we were both mm. at St. Hill. You and I were both at St. Hill at various different times. But where would you yeah. like to start in terms of your... Um, upbringing in Scientology how did this all start yeah I was going to say that I think another sort of common link we have as well is that both of our mothers were very uh, involved and um, had that high commitment level and that you know striving for a sign um, just to yeah that that Scientology was in their blood type of thing like it got in deep and that was really important to them yes um, and more, more important kids- than children Correct. And the children just kind of got dragged along beside them. Um, I've, I've definitely heard that in your story with your mother being on the RPF and the separation that you experienced and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So similarly, yeah, my mother was very gung ho. She's described in a, um, I found a, a post on a message board and it described her as being one of the most gung-ho CR members or one of the most gung-ho Scientologists that they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and that started off really. So my, my history in the Sea Organ Scientology really starts from my mother. And um, what had happened is that with her previous marriage um, before my father, it was a very tumultuous um, situation. There was domestic violence and, um, and yeah, he just led a very chaotic lifestyle. Um, and at one stage he dragged her to, um, like during an altercation or during, um, one of these situations, he grabbed her and dragged her to a psychiatric hospital and tried to have her committed involuntarily. Mm -hmm. 
And um, at that, which would have been extremely terrifying for her. And I understand that um, completely. What happened is that the admitting person um, said, no, we're not going to take her. And they denied him uh, locking her up. Um, and, and I'll give you, yeah. So, yeah. So, so going from, um, just the back of a, a violent situation, he then, you know, takes her to this place to have her basically falsely imprisoned, imprisoned. And, um, and so from there, uh, from there, there's at that time period, there's a massive campaign, anti-psychiatric campaign, um, by Scientology that mm. my, mother and this is in australia so my mother um you know connects with that pretty quickly after that she at some stage uh just you know discovers that the person that uh denied her being admitted against her will was associated with scientology i think like Hmm. it was someone's husband or wife or something like that so now she believes like the reason she was saved is because of scientology um yeah, so she eventually like separates from um, her previous husband and becomes more and more involved with Scientology. Um, from there, she starts working at a class five org in Adelaide, and that's when she meets my father. And just all the while, like this momentum is just building in her involvement deeper and deeper in Scientology. They then um, move to Sydney to join the Sea Org, and then that's when I'm born. And um and here, should we yeah. pull up pull up some yeah, of our pictures here? Yeah, let's do that. Yes. Yeah, so this is um me, this little child here is me. And this is at the um Sydney Seorg daycare um room or whatever it was. And this is my mother, so she is in the Seorg in Sydney at this stage. And I'm probably what like two years old maybe yep, a year and a half probably and a half. Yeah, yeah less. that would be yeah. my guess yeah and yeah. so you were already she was working full-time as a, as a member yes. of the sea organization and mm-hmm. you were being cared for full-time yes. in the nursery full-time meaning probably what eight o'clock in the morning until dinner did you have family time with her at that time or Yes. Um, I've, I saw photos of us that when we would have, um, family time and it was a one hour, I remember my mother telling me about it one hour, um, around dinner time. So I think it was just after dinner and she would pick us up and we'd walk down Well, she'd put me in a pram or whatever and, um, head down to a nearby park. Um, okay. Yeah. So you'd have an hour with her at dinner and then she would go back to work until the end of the night. Yes, yes. Um, so at this stage, um, the birthings in Sydney for the Sierra members was at Rush Cutters Bay. There was a Rush Cutters Bay apartment. So we had an apartment room and I've, I've got, I don't know if I have the photos, but I've seen photos of um, us. Yeah, there. So, and yeah. And so were you able to at least sleep in a room with your mother or? Yes. You, okay. Yeah. So that's different than, than what my experience was, but that's, you know, that's, um, that's why I was asking, but okay. So e- nonetheless, look how young you are. Yeah. I mean, my goodness. And then, yes, uh, yeah, I know. It's just insane. Very cute. It was very yes. cute. <laughs> yes. You were very, um, very cute. Precious. You yeah. deserved much more of your family's att- time and attention in raising you, not being handed off to anyway, that's yeah. But, and then here's a picture, another picture of your mom who is an incredibly talented artist. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say this Sea Org lifestyle worked really well for my mother. She was not someone that you would consider to be good at like domestic things. And that mm-hmm. includes the raising of children. Um, and she although she was an incredibly talented artist, she never really had a lot of success, the success that she really should have had. And maybe that's just because her time and energy, you know, went into Scientology a lot of the time, but um, she never, like she was never like financially successful or anything like that. She struggled in that way. And um, yeah. And so, and also like my mother, it's, this is crazy, but my mother has never cooked me a meal in my entire life. Wow. She's just not like, you know, and so a Sea Org, having her babies in the Sea Org, it just worked really, really well for her because she didn't have to uh, worry about any of those basic things. Um, and she, she could just dedicate herself to now at this stage when she's working in Sydney in the Sea Org, she's not there as an artist. And also her role at the Adelaide Org was not as an artist. And at some say she was an executive director. She was an ED, I think, at that Adelaide Class 5 Org. Wow. I don't know. So, so basically CEO equivalent. Right. She ran yeah. that organization. Wow. That's right. So yeah, I think she ran that organization basically just off the steam of her own energy and passion for Scientology and Alwyn Hubbard and that anti-psychiatry um, thing, because that was always a driving force for her. So, um, so, and also she also got involved in the guardian's office. So for quite a while and the guardian's office involvement started pretty early on. Um, there's stories of her going undercover into, um, psychiatric wards and she had, um, the child that she had with her from her previous marriage, she would take along. And at one stage he actually got locked up in one of the rooms there because she just forgot that she had her child with her and uh, they got separated. Yeah. This is what I'm saying. So, so some understanding about my mother is that she's very, she's been described as her sisters as being tunnel vision. So she is very narrow in her focus um, and can get really caught up in whatever it is that she's doing now as an artist, that's a great quality, but it's not a great quality as as a parent. Um, No. Yeah. especially yeah so this, and so this, so sorry just right. to, just so i understand so and of yes. course guardian's office is the precursor for office of special affairs the spy wing of scientology that uh was was responsible for the largest infiltration of the u.s government in its history so mm-hmm. your mother was working for the australian branch of the yes. guardian's office and mm-hmm. so how old was 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 her child that went with her the first child okay so he as i understand it he was 13 years old when she took him through the psychiatric ward ward so and this is before i was born this is a couple years before i was born at this stage um so yeah he was 13 um so she does I, i guess she did a tour of it i'm not sure the circumstances like you know you'd have to they'd have to like let you in they were taking her around the different rooms and stuff and just at one stage they passed through a room and he was left there and she continued on um, and didn't realize it for a while. Like he he retold this story to me and he was still, um, you know, this is sad. Um, My brother, who is my half brother, um, I reconnected up with him in coming back to Australia and also even still uh, was part of why I wanted to leave 
um, was to have family experience and also to come back to Australia. And one of those relationships that was very important for me was um, this relationship with my half brother. And I, because I met him at my grandmother's funeral um, while I was still in the Sea Org and that opened the door. I, I, that was when I first met some relatives and I was like, Oh, I can get out. There's a way out of here. And I really Mm -hmm. wanted to come back to Australia. So Steve and I, my half brother, we've had many conversations because he even though he's much older than me and he was a grown, fully grown man, he still had so much pain and Mm. like was so tormented by this past that he would share these things with me. And the, and he told me a lot of stories and this is one of the stories that he told me. And, um, so following on from that, um, yeah, he, he, yeah, yeah. It was very traumatizing for him to be locked up in a room with mentally um, ill people. On I his can own only imagine. And, and not to negate the fact yeah. either that your mother was um, preyed on and brought into Scientology as a result of her own traumatic experience with psychiatry. So no doubt he, she had imparted that to him. I, I can only imagine. And then well, he, would, he was present. Been, the thing is he was present during those early traumatic experiences. He was a four year old child while all this domestic violence was going on. Um, And when the husband grabbed her and took her to where, where was the four year old child? Because, okay, this is, this is the scenario. This is what my mother has told me in this. There's a lot more to the story, but in this scenario is what's happening immediately before she gets taken to the psychiatric ward is um, they have, I was like, I don't know how to tell the whole story without telling all the story. So I'm just, I'm going to tell you the whole story. <laughs> Let me just okay. tell you the whole story. Okay. I might as whatever. well tell you the whole story. And I will so just what say, happened, yeah, whatever yeah. you're comfortable with. And, and yeah, yeah, it's, it's all I'll good. Try. We'll- yeah. So what had happened is that her husband had had a whole um, he was a musician. He had had a, a past of infidelity in their relationship. Um, and she, so she's a, a, you know, a painter, an artist, and he's also an artist as a musician. Um, and I, I know that there was drugs involved. They did LSD. I know that that was one of the things that disqualified her for this year, but because of her work in the guardian's office, she was able to override that. Anyways, she obviously did a lot for the guardian's office. Yes. She did enough that they still have her there. Yeah. And that she, and anyways, so, um, okay. So they have a huge, what happens is that he's, he's off cheating on her again. Yeah. Again, he's down at the bars. He's always at the bars drinking, da da da. And she's just like fed up. She's like, I'm, I'm just going to cheat on him as well. So her friend comes over and they, you know, get involved. And then the husband comes back from the bar sure drunk and rowdy and whatever and catches her out um he then flies into a rage and starts to break everything in the house every window every he had all this like he had a whole music studio there um he broke every instrument he broke every meanwhile her and her child who was four years old are hiding under a table I'm explaining this scenario because I want people to understand the amount of trauma that my mother went through. And there's also other stuff in her past. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a precursor for her then with this psychiatric situation um, and this whole leap into Scientology and to understand why she's so steadfast in what she's doing today. 
Yeah. She came from an extremely a traumatic situation. Okay. So he proceeds to break everything in the house and they're hiding under the table. Then he grabs her and drags her to this uh, hospital. Um, now I didn't ask her at the time. I, maybe I assumed, I didn't actually think to, to ask like, where was Steve, but I'm guessing Steve would have been in the car with them. He would have been with them. He would have just grabbed both of them. Right. So all that's to say is that, you know, Steve did go through a lot of this stuff with her, so then on from that, she's uh, with the separation and then the, she's like a struggling artist and isn't sort of doing well financially, but she's becoming more and more focused on Scientology and Steve's being just dragged around the whole time. So by the time um, that, so now we'll skip forward a bit. So now you understand what happened to yes, her very much, so. and, um, and why she would be so, um, you know, just so steadfast. And so, um, yeah, I guess. So, so fast forward a little bit, we're in Sydney now, I've been born into the Sea Org. And Steve has gone to Sydney with her, but she, and he's now uh, 15. And he's gone into the Sea Org. Okay. Um, he's probably early 15, like just kind of turned. Um, and she because she's doing the Sea Org. And so now he's in the Sea Org. But he ends up he's not there long. He ends up on the RPF and then he ends up leaving. He goes to live with um, our grandparents in Adelaide. Okay. Um, so from there, she then has three Sea Org babies. Um, my old, my brother, that's just a little bit older than me. He was born in Adelaide just right before they moved to Sydney. I see. Um, so we're very close in age. So at that time, yeah, we're still really little. Then she has her third baby and yeah, we're all Sea Org babies. And then then, okay, then we can move on to the next one. So the next okay. thing that happens to her. Uh, so in the meantime, oh, and by the way, I should say that when I was two months old, she went to Los Angeles with me because she told me this story as she was doing work for the Guardian's office there. And she mm-hmm. said that um, she was up late at night typing away, typing documents, like legal documents and that sort of thing. And I was like awake <laughs> and I was- Two-month-old baby I w- in the Guardian's office. She said office. I was- Right. I don't think she was in the guardian's office. I think she was in her room because it was like in the middle of the night, like a birthing room or whatever. And she was annoyed because I was distracting her from her work. This is how she's explained it to me. Like no joke. But, um, so, so, so that, so that you get an understanding of my mother, I think from that. Um, and right. And so, um, now, at this now, Alwyn Hubbard dies. Then the creation of the life, the Alwyn Hubbard life exhibition, that whole is sort of that big mission, um, and which to, to memorialize him as a saint and the savior of all mankind, and and highlight his many alleged accomplishments that have been disproven over time, and so on yes. and so forth. Yep. Yes. Yes. Now, um, and it's actually quite a brilliant idea. So Mike Rinder talks about this in his book, where he says that he created this, this was his sort of brainchild, and he created this life exhibition. Um, And at that stage, there was a call that was put out to all the artists that were Scientologists, um, because part of that exhibition was going to be a series of oil paintings. And my mother applied through that and submitted some uh, piece of work because everyone was supposed to submit one thing. And she got, this is what she tells me. This is what she told me. She got selected out of um, all these other people. It was a huge source of pride for her. 
um, that all over the world, all the Scientologists in all the world. Um, but she was the one that was selected is what she said. Yeah. So she's like, great, this is amazing. Um, this is like all of her dreams have come true. And in fact, there is a photo with she's written that on the back and she says dreams really do come true. Mm -hmm. I didn't put that note in this, but, um, but this was like, you know, all these things coming together for her. Um, and so off she went, her her life dream coming to fruition, essentially. hundred percent. She could be, you know, full-time dedication to art and also our and Hubbard and Scientology there and no distractions, a distraction free environment. So this is, this is it for her. She's gone. She, so she's gone. She takes off. She goes to LA to go and do this work and it's oil paintings take a long time. And there was, I think, I believe 13 paintings in total. Yeah. And sorry. So what year was this and how old were you and your siblings at this point? Right. So, um, I believe I've tried to track this down. I have some notes on the back of photos. Um, the timeline, I know she's there in May, 1989. Um, I believe that she's there February, 1989. There's a snowstorm that occurs, I think in February, 1989, I'd have to check my notes and stuff, but I have all this documented. Um, but just forgive me if I don't get the exact uh, but anyways, there's a snowstorm. And so there's there's a photo of her with snow on the back of the Hollywood Hills behind her. And oh. She's in L.A. She's standing on the top of a building. And, um, of course, we know that there's rarely ever snow in Los Angeles. So um, I, I checked, looked back, and there's in February 1989, there's a snowstorm that comes through. Hmm. So um, that makes sense. <laughs> anyways, yeah. but it says 1989. The year is written, not the month. Okay. Um, so I don't know how early or how, how much earlier than that, that she had gone over there for that. Like, I just don't know the exact year or time, um, but she's gone. We're separated definitely for at least um, a year and a half, two years around about that time, because um, it was a significant amount of time. My father then left the Sea Org because he was like, well, I'll just, try and raise my kids on my own. I don't want to really do the Sea Org thing. The thing is, I don't think he was ever interested in the Sea Org. I think it was always her thing that she wanted to do. Yeah. So he's like, oh, well, she's doing her thing. I'm going to go do my thing. And um, and um, he really struggled. It's really hard being a single parent. Of three this- children with no mother. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and sorry, and how old were you roughly at this okay. point? Yeah. So roughly, I believe I was around about four years old. Wow. Is my best guess. Yeah. Which means, um, so my youngest brother was around one years old. Okay. And then my older brother was around five. Okay. And looking at the photos and different dates and stuff like that, I think that works out to be the timing. Like I remember, so, so then, so then what happens is because it's such a, a long period of time in the, when you're so young, I didn't, I didn't have any memories of her. So by the time, like all I remember was just like my dad and my brothers. And I remember my youngest brother, I remember teaching him how to t- like say words, his first words and stuff like that, like cat and dog and car and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So, so then, so that's about a year and a half to two years goes by. Well, let's say about a year and a half goes by. Then she calls as a phone call and she says, um, apparently uh, she gives him some kind of ultimatum. Like you're either um, 
yeah, you're either, what did she say? Like, basically you either come here and join the Sea Org in LA or that's it. Like it's all over and done with. And then we just go like, yeah, fully separate and whatever. Hmm. So he decided he wanted to keep his family together. So he then, and then it took some months to obviously had to get the money together for the flights and he had to like get rid of all of our belongings and all this, this sort of thing. So I remember seeing that process kind of take place and, um, you know, kind of wondering what's happening. And then, but also like, he was like, Oh, we're going to go and live with your mom and we're going to go and your mom. And, um, I was like, Oh, that's, you know, we're kids like, Oh, you're going to go and see your mom. So you're like excited. But then I was like, I don't know what she, I don't, I I started to worry (laughs) because I'm like, I don't know what she looks like. Like, I don't know. I couldn't envision her. Like, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to go and see her at the airport. I understood that part. I'm going to go on a big, a a big plane and then then she's going to greet us. But then I was like, Oh, but I'm not going to be able to recognize her. And I started to worry about that. (laughs) So like in these months that my dad's preparing for us to move and getting rid of our things and stuff like that, I'm just worrying. Like, I don't know. I'm not going to recognize her. That's weird. I knew that was weird for a kid to, to not know their mother. I'm like, is someone going to know that I'm, a strange child that I don't know my own mother. Like it really worried me. So understandably, that's just, yeah. 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 Um, so then we arrive in, so we fly over, arrive. This is 1990, September, 1990, we arrive and I've just turned six at this stage. Um, so then, yeah. So then um, we, she greets us at the airport and I am relieved because um, it's like, I see her, but I, it's obvious that it's her because she's like, my children, it's like so dramatic. Like she falls to her knees and like holds her arms out and we all run forward and, you know, she wraps us up in a big hug and, and I, I'm like, okay, great. This is, I'm really happy now. I'm like, okay, great. Like, you know, I know who my mother is. That's good. <laughs> it's a good thing and everything's going to be okay now everything's going to be good um but two days later she drops us off at the ceo which is the cadet estates org which was where the Sea Org children were um <laughs> placed i yes. was gonna say cared for but like oh really, yeah no. No. all right so we arrive in la and then she places us in the ceo two days later which is the cadet estates org which is where the sea org children were placed so there's just there's over 100 kids just running around all really little kids and it varied um there was well see by this stage my youngest brother he would have been two no three he was three. Wow. Okay. So my younger brother would have been three at this stage. Um, so there was toddlers. Um, as I understand it, there was babies at that stage too in there. And then it was just like, and then, yeah. And it just was like crazy. It just all lots of kids just running around. Um, so she just leaves and then we just don't see her for the next few months. Um, because interestingly enough, see, she's at gold. Now I say, I don't understand a lot of this stuff at that age. I'm just placed there. And I just know that I don't see her for a long time after that. But see, my father is on the EPF at this stage. Um, so he's not, he can't come and pick me up and da, 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 da. So we're, I'm just round the clock living at the CEO and I, we only have the clothes that we arrived there in. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because our belongings are now, which is like we had like a bag, I assume they would have packed a bag, whatever, like each for each kid, I imagine. I don't know. 
Um, but we had some clothes and uh, that was back at the Anthony building, which was where the birthings were when we were displaced into the CEO um, and you would sleep on cots. They were these canvas cots, like a uh, green color, um, just aluminum or metal um, structure. Anyway, it's just really basic and like a blanket. And then, um, yeah. So my dad's on the EPF, however long that takes. Usually it's a couple months. Right. My mother at that stage, she's at gold. And so, you guys go. So like two hours away, two hours yeah. drive away from where you're physically located. Yeah. And you guys are going through a base wide like shutdown at that time, because as I understand, I heard um, your husband talk about this. It was between like September, October, November was up to like Thanksgiving or around that time in 1990 was there was a whole base wide lower conditions. Is that right? Yes. So that was actually before I arrived to that property, but yes, Mark was Uh. there and there was um, a massive flood in August mm-hmm. 1990 that flooded David Miscavige's birthing and everything else. And so, so yes, there was a massive, um, everyone was in lower conditions and deemed out ethics and there was punishments and very strict rules were implemented even more strict than normal um, mm-hmm. for that period. So yes, it was at least two or three months. There was um, James Byrne and Greg Wilhare were running extreme uh, like martial law is what they called it. I mean, I'm sure that's a joke to actual martial law, but you know, Sea Org standards, mm-hmm. um, that's what they were doing. So yes, yeah, she would not have been allowed to leave the property at all no. during that time. Yeah. So simply she was literally allowed to go to LAX to like basically pick us up. We were in LA for two days and then gone obviously once she goes back to that base she's then not allowed out after that absolutely so yeah um and it's crazy so that's like it's like a natural event there's a flood but no that must be because you guys are out ethics right right? like so i mean that's that's yeah it defies all logic when you break it down it's crazy yeah and while you're like six and your brother is three and your other sibling is seven I mean, my goodness. Yes. And you'd already mm-hmm. not seen her for two, almost two years. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. So then, yeah. So then it's like, you know, both like, so I'm just, we're just in there. We're just, we don't know. We don't have answers to any questions. Like, what are we doing here? What is our life? Like, what is, it's just like, it, this, it's so, I can't even to describe the scene of chaos at this place that we entered into as little kids that, so the shower was all group shower, like all girls, all girls. So you imagine it's just like 50 girls, all varying ages, like little kids, uh, all showering together. Like, it's just, it's chaos. It's just chaos. And then the boys came, like, I just remember that first shower time was very like, I was just like, like, it was like, yeah, very eye opening of like, what, what's happening. Um, and then, and then the boys, they were like banging on the doors, like they were busting to come in. And anyway, it just was like, it was so crazy. So, um, yeah. So I remember that time very clearly and then just not understanding like what's supposed to happen. Um, so anyways, then, and I, and then you adjust, and then that right. becomes your new normal. So yeah. that became my new normal. And kids are very resilient, and I ju- adjusted, yeah. and um, and then that was my life. So yeah. so that's the early childhood. We then later a little bit later on after that, 
we moved to the ATA, which is just another building or another location, the Apollo Training Academy. It's yep. another place in Los Angeles, which they had the kids at. This is now the time period about when I'm seven years old is when my um, Scientology indoctrination really begins. Mm -hmm. I start learning about the tone scale, start learning about Aaron Hubbard. I start learning about Aaron Hubbard through the life exhibition. Here's the irony, right? Because now we start being toured through this life exhibition on like a weekly basis, like a really, I probably went through there a hundred times. But the exciting thing for me was that yeah, the exciting thing for me was that I got to see my mother's paintings. Mm-hmm. So I so still at this time, I'm rarely seeing, you know, this is after the conditions have been lifted at the at gold. So I see her from time to time, but it's very, very rare. And for some reason or other, she goes away on missions. And I know that because she tells me things and she brings back little souvenirs from different countries and like she goes to Switzerland and I don't know why she's going there, but um everything's confidential everything's top secret and um and including the location where the base is is um at gold is confidential so that's as i'm growing up that's what i understand where she is at a top secret confidential location yeah and you're not allowed to know where your mother is or when you'll next see her for that matter yes correct then yeah so then we start getting but i think she's like I think she's amazing though. I, I think like, she's just like this kind of Scientology superhero going on missions. Like it sounded so exciting and everything was confidential. And like, that's what I'm saying. Like as a kid, I was like, Oh wow. She must be so important. She must be doing amazing things. Um, and I just really, she was a hero in my eyes for sure. And and I barely knew her, but, but that's what kids do. Um, that, that we idolize. Sure. Yeah. Yes. We so, put our parents on pedestals, whether they whether they deserve those or not, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So then, um, yeah, so then at seven years old, the, all the indoctrination is happening, and I start doing Scientology courses as well. That's the start of the Scientology courses, like um, the, the children's communication course that comes a little bit later on, but, um, I'm learning, doing the learning how to learn. So I'm learning the Aaron Hubbard study technology and that sort of thing. Seven, eight years old, seven years old. I'm also still learning how to read. So I'd say maybe that's more like a little bit later, eight, nine years old. I'm doing like the learning how to learn. Um, okay. So where am I going now? Um, Okay, so, so yeah, we, being we covered on yeah, so we touched on yeah. eight, uh, the CEO and the ATA, yeah. Um, yeah, and and all, and now you're going through the LRH Life ex- Exhibition yes. weekly. Yes, yes, there was a period of time that we went really regularly, and probably that was just the stats thing, like number right. of people through it. Yep, but that was an incredible experience of like seeing my mother's work, and I. I was so excited every time to go because it was my connection to her because I rarely saw her. Um, so, you know, and just, yeah. So that was the life, the Elrond Hubbard life exhibition has got, it's a very important part in my childhood story because that was why we were there right. in the first. Um, so, um, so anyways, yeah. And also just like, yeah, my, my mother's work being displayed and it's still there on display. So from there, yeah, we're at the ATA for a while. And then when I'm 11 years old, we moved to the ranch. Um, okay. and, uh, and you want me to pull in the pictures? Yeah. Yes. Let's do this here. Okay, here we go. 
So it's the Canyon Oaks Ranch and it's in Santa Clarita, Saugus, is around the area. Um, yeah. And this was great actually, because the ranch compared to LA, like LA was the, where we were was not a good area. It was a terrible, terrible area, especially for children. And like the ATA is, well, even like the CEO, like just the, everything was just like, too crowded overcrowded with children and just no nature like the ata is just literally just a cement block with like blue tarp yeah and that was it um and yeah blue tarp fence and yeah it just was not a great place for a kid but going to the canyon oaks ranch um the pack ranch was now you had like fresh air and you had space to run around and there yeah like it just was a better situation better in comparison yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and so how far is canyon oaks ranch from um the, yeah the pack buildings the big blue buildings in los angeles i'm actually not certain i think it's like an hour and a half to two yeah. hours that i want to say roughly yeah. yeah um yeah yeah okay and then shall we just run through these pictures here right as you so tell? this yeah. So this photo. Um, okay. So what had happened at this time? So kids had moved up to the ranch before me. I was in one of the sort of, I don't know, maybe like the last 50 or 60 kids or whatever before the young, young, young kids came up. But um, yeah, so there was already a bunch of kids up at the ranch at this stage. I had gone to the ranch prior to that during the LA riots. They had brought up all the kids from LA and we'd stay there for a couple of weeks um, to, you know, get us out of harm's way. And, um, and, but the, this particular time I'm still at the ATA, but Doug Fionica, who is the new cadet coordinator, um, in charge of all the cadets at the ranch, he's very like a militaristic and he had this obstacle course built at the ranch here. You can see like there's the berm and then mm -hmm. the background, you can see the climbing thing and all that. But anyways, he came to, um, LA to the ATA to like, whip the kids into into shape and so he'd started doing like exercises and like drills and stuff like that to prepare us to go to the ranch like get used to it this is what's going to be what your future is going to be like um and so one of the things i think it, they did this on two days but definitely this is one of the days they took us to the ranch to run us through the obstacle course that wow. was the reason why. And we were all told, and I think we did other work while we were there, but we were all told that we had to wear pants. So you see all the kids are wearing like jeans and pants in here. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So the first thing we did was we were taken up to the obstacle course to run up. And I think this is me on the top of the berm with the white t-shirt and the jeans. Okay. And yeah. uh, <laughs> having a little struggle to get out there. It was, yeah. it was hard. Unbelievable. Um, so yeah, we were running through that. And I think, you know, probably some of the kids thought that was really fun. And I yeah. don't think we minded it too much. Like when your kids, you're like, cool, whatever, a bit of exercise, run around. Right. But and the purpose of it yeah. was to get you in line. That was the purpose of it. And you'll see later in the photos with all the marching and all that sort of thing was really his brand um, was what he was bringing to of the uh, child, mind, child mind control. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah, we'll run through these here and then you can fill in the holes along the way. Yeah. So this is Doug Fionica um, here on the right. Now, this photo was taken for, I believe it was the Cadet Times newsletter. Um, there are also other photos that were taken um, for compliance reports. So it's kind of really funny that we now have all these photos of like, you're like, mm, very strange things, but they were documented um, 
by the staff basically and by the cadets um, to show that they were doing the right thing for what aligning with the purposes of the Sea Org and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know what's going on here, but basically, yeah, they're just holding a plank of wood. But the idea is you're working as a team and they're, they're getting us in line and they're training us to be future Sierra members. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um, and this is just like a, an example of like a typical day. Um, this is the patio outside the dining hall and we would muster here every day. Sometimes the muster location would be in a different spot, but this is kind of very, a very routine um, type of situation there. And, and who, so you've got, right. sorry, do you know who the person is running that there? Is that, uh, that would be, that would be another cadet. Not an adult, yeah. not an adult. So yeah. yeah, exactly. That's a really great point that you raise. Um, there was an organization board for the children. So the children were ran, were run as a organization, um, mm -hmm. based on like how the C organization is set up based on our and Hubbard policies and flag orders and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. everyone has a position, everyone holds a post, a job, and then there's um, like an echelon, a hierarchy of command and, and that sort of thing that you would. So there, like, if you wanted to get some time off, if you wanted to get a day off, like, let's say your parent had a day off and they're yeah. like on Sunday, let's, I'm having a libs day. Let's get the day off together. You would have to do a CSW, which is completed staff work to submit to your seniors to say, this is the work that I've done. This is the situation. I want to take this time off. And I'm proposing that um, if I, I'll get all this extra work done and so that it won't be a problem. And, um, and then the kids who are your seniors, they can say yes or no. To right. That. Yes. Which I had, I had many of those experiences. And I also remember in Catherine Spolino's book, which I'm is amazing, saying. a bad cadet. Mm -hmm. She talks about that. She did one of those completed staff work um, yes. proposals to be able to spend a day with her parents and it was disapproved. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it's not yeah. even a guarantee in this situation that you were in it, that if you mm -hmm. asked for a day off that you would be granted it. Absolutely not. So yeah. you had to have your stats up and you had to not be in any lower conditions, um, which like I often found myself in some kind of ethics trouble. And, um, and so your stats have to be up. So your production has to be higher than the week before. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then, and then even if you do those things, it's going to be a matter of opinion, kind of like whether, did you displease any of those people that need to sign off? Um, yeah. And in, in Catherine's situation, that was the scenario. So the bad cadet by Catherine Spolino has some really great, like detailed anecdote type stories in there that really are great examples of the things that would happen all the time of course because you're when you're writing a book you just kind of have to like pick an example here and there you can't write all the times that that happened but that what i'm trying to say is that that was routine that was the life that we were living right um, yeah absolutely yeah oh my goodness okay here we go so this photo, so this is also very routine um, work. What they're doing is creating fire breaks. So they're clearing the brush um, from the property, from around the property, clearing the weeds and stuff like that. So to reduce fire hazards. Um, behind them is the galley, and which is like the main kitchen, the big kitchen, and then the dining hall where you'd eat. And also next to that is um, ISO which is where the sick kids would be put where you can see that window on the right hand side. Um, yes. so if you I were so sick, you'd get put in there. As in 
isolation. <laughs> yes. So again, in Catherine Spelina's book, The Bad Cadet, there's a really, um, it's one of the stories in there that I really love because I think it just shows a lot of nuances in the experience. Um, but that, that situation takes place in that location. So that's, um, yeah, that's what that looks like. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that was just a regular routine. Now the post, there was a post called, I think, Expediter. Yep. So anyone, basically, um, if you didn't have like a, a real job, they would just call you an Expediter. Um, and then that basically meant you would just do manual labor or just whatever. Random yeah, things. like you could be, you could be dispatched to any different area of the organization to expedite something that needed to be done. That's yeah. the name expediter. That, that was my understanding anyway. Yeah. You could be like basically put on anything, but right. then there's also, yeah. Um, I think they had, I'm trying to remember if they had a specific job for this, but anyway, but there was, there was also just like where everyone just had to do stuff like this. Oh, like all hands, all hands. Yeah. 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 In the fire season, you know, the peak summer um, fire season and all that. Yeah. 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 Okay. So this is um photo on the berm and the berm is in the back. It's towards the back of the ranch property. And this would just be a bunch of cadets. Uh, an another photo. I think this is also for the cadet times newsletter um, that they were putting these photos. And in. so look at all you kids. And there was mm -hmm. how many adults uh, that lived at right. this property with you? So this is actually a really reduced amount of kids because at this stage, a lot of the kids, I think I've already joined the Sea Org okay. at, at this stage. At the time period, yeah. So um, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure these are the kids that are left behind after a bunch of us have gone. to. So it had even been more than this in, in oh, previous. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. there was Doug Fiondica. Were there other, was there a handful of other adults there at the property as well? Yes, there was a handful of other adults, um, and I don't know who was who was left exactly. It averaged around like five adults per like a hundred, hundred and fifty kids was kind of the ratio throughout the whole um, thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Just... We had kind of like people that came and go, or people that were there for a couple of years or whatever, and then there was the ones that were just there for like our entire childhood. Like we had dorm moms that we basically grew up with, and a dorm mom is like back at the Anthony Building in LA um, when we were going to the ATA. They it was just like one um, one adult per dormitory, um, so a bunch of kids, and then like they're like your dorm mom. They're, they're like your pretend mom <laughs> um it's not not a mother in any kind of sense of the word no. but but not but you know these were not awful people the lot right. of them like you know like um so heather swaney and nancy zudeweg for example i've got really fond memories of them you know and i also have memories like i, I was a bit of a brat <laughs> like you know, anyways, it's, it's a mixture. Um, I think that look, some look of at them... the situation you were in, you were an absolute angel. Uh, that's my, <laughs> that's my take on that as a, a mom of three kids. Like I can't, and, and obviously, yes, oh, I had very yeah. similar experiences, so I understand, but it's, I think it's really hard just seeing these pictures in retrospect as a mom going, this is just, I mean, what, what kid is, this is not a healthy environment for a child to grow up in under any circumstances. 
No, not at all. But the thing, the thing is like my personality, like I was a bit rambunctious and, um, and, and, but then what I was being taught was that I was bad. Right. I was bad if I was out of line. I was, I was bad. I was out ethics. I had knowledge reports written on me. So that was what was being really ingrained in my head. And I needed to conform, um, and follow our and Hubbard and follow Scientology and anything outside of that was not good. Um, and, and so, yeah. And, and let me just pause to say, I am so grateful you're here and that you got out. Just thank you. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I know. I'm, I'm very grateful. Um, and there's, there's a lot. So, so the thing is as well, um, the thing that really got us through is the bonds and the friendships and the relationships that we had that we formed amongst each other. And, and, and not all of that was, you know, I'm not saying it was like some kind of happy, (laughs) it's a, it's not a great situation that we were in. Right. But, um, but kids, the thing about kids is that we're going to try and find our silver linings when we can. Yeah. We will try and find something to be joyful of, joyful for. I think for me, that was kind of like raising a bit of hell every now and then kind <laughs> of was like a bit of fun. Um, and so, yeah, like, because you weren't allowed to pursue anything else. So for example, like I liked drawing and I liked writing, um, but we weren't allowed to do anything creativity, creatively. Like there wasn't any schedule that was set that's not in the schedule. (laughs) That's a good point. Like it wasn't in the schedule. It's not included in the curriculum. So you were only being given a basic education that would be just enough for you to become a Sea Org member. And that's what it was geared towards. You needed to learn to read and write um, to the, you know, up to a standard where you could do Scientology. um, Not not to pursue your dreams or your goals or anything else, but just to become a cog in the Scientology machine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so you don't have any purpose for education. It's like, well, why, why do we need to, you know, you don't have a, there's no, there's no need for it. Um, so while I wanted to pursue other things, there was just no other option. There's nothing available. Um, so that back to that picture, we'll go back yeah. to that one. That yeah. was, yeah. So that's Doug Fionica again, standing there by the tree. And then you've got all these kids uh, marching. So this is, he was doing marching drills. And I remember that day, he was basically just getting us to march up and down the property for like hours. Um, and I believe this is me. I had short hair at the time, the blue shirt in the back there, back, right. Um, anyways, um, this is right before I joined the Sea Org. Okay. And um, yeah, so he just had us marching. It was just marching, marching, endless marching. And it was just for the purpose of making us whatever, <laughs> make condition, what you condition that, you but... to follow orders. Exactly. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah. So yeah, marching drills. And we did a lot of that throughout the whole ranch experience. Yeah. Um, and yeah. what year was this now? Roughly? So this would be 1998. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so 1995 to 1998, we would do the, the same drills at mm. Int, which is why I was asking that because you know how, how things were, the, the programs would just filter down and everybody's yeah. going to do those things. But um, so there were hours and hours of the same drills with the, the CIRG members at the base. Obviously this is a very different scenario with all ages of children doing this in the middle of the desert. 
Mm, well, that's really interesting. Yeah, because I arrived at the ranch in 1996. Yeah. So, and before the, um, before that in, at the ATA, um, where they were starting to do, he was doing that prep with us, getting us to March, getting us to do these things. Um, yeah, it's through that whole time period. So yeah, that was, um, definitely a, a day-to-day, like big part of the ranch experience was, yeah, the marching drills and the, um, yeah, there was also like, so if you didn't get to muster on time, then you would have to do push-ups or, or you'd have yeah. to do laps, do laps around the whole thing. So there's always like, yeah, punishments and discipline and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. And what have we so, here? Right. So this is 1998 and this is when I joined the Sea Org. This is my EPF. Now, um, this is in Lebanon Hall this photo. Okay. And so this is a bunch of rancher kids who, um, were, they basically started taking the ranch kids by groups and putting them in the Sea Org. Our particular, well, this was like, yeah, they did this in a couple waves, but basically this is that, that big original group that joined the Sea Org from the ranch. Um, and we were going to be, when we got into the Sea Org, once we finished our APF, we were going to be trained to be the auditors and the technical staff for PAC base. So okay. we were going to be the resource that provided all the Sea Org members with their auditing and help them get up the bridge. Um, we might be, some of us might be CSs or maybe um, supervisors. Like we might be in different technical um roles mm -hmm. but that was the aim of it primarily we were going to be auditors that was the main thing okay and Which that's what we were told yeah. counselors counselors in scientology to help the staff yeah. um get advanced uh, to help the staff advance themselves in scientology yeah exactly so um we were going to Form, yeah, this technical uh, technical resource for pack base um, so that the staff members could go up the bridge because that was always just never occurring. And the idea was that while you're a Sea member, you should be progressing up the bridge. And of course, there was never any resources for that. And this was one of the solutions like, hey, we've got all these kids, we'll train them up to be auditors and they can be your auditors. Oh, um, yeah. And so the ages takes us right, to this one exactly. right yeah so this is us um our uniform was red shirt as you can see and so our group was coined the red shirt ttc because we were very obvious moving around pack we always moved as a group we were always together as a group um and so we all you know ate at the same times mustard course course rooms uh sorry in the course rooms and then securing which meant when we go back to our birthings to our dorms for the night but all we did was um, train in Scientology. And so when I arrived here, so when I did the EPF um, and arrived into the Red Shirt TTC, I was 13 years old. And wow. the ages, the youngest was 11 years old. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah. So, yeah. So there was, there was some, a lot of young ones in there. And then maybe the oldest, I'm just trying to remember, maybe like, I would say like 14, maybe 15 would, could be stretching it, but I think 14. Um, but yeah, it's a bunch of, so yeah, it's yeah. maybe 15, let's say 15. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, and the irony yeah. being of course, that the members of the C organization are supposed to be the upper elite of Scientology, the most ethical beings on the planet. Mm. And 
now and they're supposed to receive training and counseling in Scientology and they never they never were given that they're still not but their yeah. big solution to this was to take their the 11 to 14 or 15 year old children mm-hmm. and make that the children's responsibility to yes. train and counsel the Org members i mean ugh, it's it's yeah. just quite something anyway it really and then, yeah, it really is. Yeah, it really is. It's kind of sick when you think about it. it. It's like the parents put their kids into this system that they're going to now reap the benefits of. Essentially, yeah, you're not necessarily going to have your own child auditing you, but you might have the next kid auditing you. Like it's a real sick. <laughs> um, actually, never looked at it that way, but I mean, I looked at it as it was not good. <laughs> like it no, was no, and, and, and you know, how, like yeah. Yeah, and and Serge Delmar has made the excellent point several times, and and yes. I've talked about it as well. If you just even consider what you're learning to do when you're training mm-hmm. to do Scientology counseling, it's absolutely 100% inappropriate to teach that to 11 to 15-year-olds, not only the level of cult indoctrination, but even just break it down to you're teaching children to interrogate adults about mm-hmm. some of their deepest, darkest secrets, including things that are absolutely inappropriate material for for children. Absolutely not okay. And yet this was their grand solution as to how the members of the C organization were going to get Scientology training and counseling. It's just pretty sinister, really. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good like summary of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Yes. And so I want to add a couple of things so people understand this scenario. So it's a bunch of kids. Now, we were told that while we were on our training, we could not have, like, you couldn't even have a crush on somebody. You couldn't have, you couldn't, um, so no, nothing, no boyfriend, girlfriend, no flirting. So that was a huge rule. No 2D flows. So you couldn't even flirt with someone. And I was so petrified of getting into trouble. Remember, like I was a bit of a troublemaker when I was a kid, but mm-hmm. this is the Sea Org. The consequences for, for causing trouble in the Sea Org is the RPF. And I was terrified because I had grown up. There was this kid that went in the RPF, right? And for years, he was in there for years and years, Ugh. this tall, skinny kid. He was like a teenager when he got in. And for years, I watched this kid grow up into a full grown man on the RPF. And I would, so whenever I thought RPF, I always thought of him and, um, he was on it for years and years and years and years. Like, I don't even, it's insane. Um, and so, and also we had grown up with these scenes of like, yeah, the RPFer is in the dining hall at the complex. So we'd go to the main building at the complex, go into the dining hall and there would just be this whole, just a whole plume of smoke that would fill the entire room with all the cigarette smoking because they'd be smoking while they'd be eating their food. This is when you could um, smoke inside the building. Yeah. And um, it was literally, it was just like this whole like fog of cigarette smoke. Um, it's a scene that like you can't even imagine. No. Like it's just... And these poor, just bedraggled, yeah, RPFers. Anyway, so I just, as a kid growing up, I saw them all the time, like in and out of the complex and stuff like that. And I'm sure that you recognize, so this is the Rehabilitation Project Force, of course. It's the ultimate um, 
slave camp reprogram attempt. So I'm sure that, well, as a kid, were you aware of the stigma that those people carried with them, even within the C organization? Like as in, um, oh, yes. Oh, 100%. Like that they're not even allowed to originate a communication to somebody else, not on that program, that they have to run everywhere, that they had to, they, at least when, when I knew it, they had to dress all in black. Um, right. They couldn't even talk to anybody not also on that program. Yeah, Claire, I mean, some of the kids' parents were in the RPF as we grew up. And so yeah. we knew, like, oh, my dad's in the RPF. And we're like, ooh, gold. Ooh, like we knew what that meant. And we would, so the um, what the, the things that the RPFs had to wear changed over time. And I guess that was just due to public attention. But I remember back in the day, they had an armband that they would have to wear. Yeah. Uh, I think it was a black armband, I want to say. But um but I also saw that the changes in the things that they wore um, up until the two early 2000s where they were just wearing a gray t-shirt and black pants was their uniform. But, okay. but prior to that, it was all black. Um, and so there was these different evolutions in what they were allowed to wear. But yeah, it was just like this black and gray army um, of like poor, like ashen, like downtrodden, just, um, you know, like, ugh. Horrible, yeah. horrible. And um, and so and that so, was what was hanging over your head for even oh, yeah. even yeah. flirting uh, yes. or e- as a as a, I was, a young I was so teenager. Worried. Yeah. Yes. So um, so the thing is, as well as we knew that the RPF was not a quick thing. We knew that people went there and they didn't leave for years and years and years. And yeah. the kids that I grew up with that had a parent on the RPF, like years would go by and they didn't have any contact with their parent. They couldn't, you know, see them and stuff. Um, Anyway, so we knew it was a place you didn't want to be sent to. That's for sure. Um, So, so, so this is the beginning of my like fear of the RP, like my real fear. Now it's a potential consequence for me. Now, Going back a little bit, when I was at the ranch, they came up with a thing called the Ethics and Correction Group. And I was in the first of that group, the ECG, as they called it. And it was modeled off the RPF. So I had done a kid's RPF at the ranch. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was uh, because a little bit of like canoodling with a couple of boys, uh, we'll say. So that's why like this thing of like this out 2D, as they called it that was my, I was really worried. I didn't want to like, yeah. So while I was on the redshirt TTC, I didn't even have a crush on anybody. I didn't, I was like, so worried about it. You can't even tell you. I didn't even like look twice. I didn't dare flirt. It was definitely a huge concern for me. Um, and then the other thing is that, you know, it's a bunch of teenagers. So there was also a lot of like thing. There was a huge thing about masturbation at this time too, um, and so I didn't dare do that. That was, that's another, I was just like terrified, like, Oh, um, so, but they, but, but it would come up in, um, it's awful. It would come up for people. I'm getting like emotional about that all of a sudden, but like, it's, that's know, really it's, horrible. And it's very damaging. Um, it is. Yeah, it absolutely yeah. is. And, and this is where this is a dangerous environment to grow up in as a child and to have all this concern put on stuff like it's none of their business what you do yeah yeah and to be made to feel so awful about it um so then you know and then there's like they would get ethics handlings and like and it would 
be spoken about like oh they like not I didn't know names of like who exactly but it'd be like oh someone's been you know like found out to be like yeah anyways you know what it's that whole pressure and stuff I do so we were in this program for nearly two years and at the end of that they decided to disperse us out into different organizations um and we had reached varying levels of technical training uh, um, where some of us were auditors and some of us weren't. And like, I, this was something that I struggled with. So I got as far as the upper end doc TRs. Okay. <laughs> it was, it's like my, I was like struggling with Scientology. Like I couldn't assimilate it. And uh, what was happening for me is like, I got stuck on the, um, the pro TRs course for a long time. I got stuck on the, uh, the TR zero for a year and I'm not even joking you. And And so of course, and of course, just for context, for anyone listening that has no idea what we're talking about, TR zero is you literally are sitting in a chair uh, with your eyes open in front of another person, like two, three feet away from you in another chair. And you have to you cannot pass this until you can do this two for two hours flawlessly. And you yeah. were doing this for a year. Did it for a year. Wow. Now, in amongst that, so I wasn't like st- sitting in that chair straight for a year. But what would happen is that I would go and sit in the chair across from my twin. And then I would be going unconscious. The term in Scientology it, that Alwyn Hubbard coined is anatin. And that means going unconscious. So I would sit there and I'd just be like, after a few minutes, I would just be like, like my not, I would start, I'd go on the nod, basically. Yeah. Anatin, start nodding out. Yeah. yeah. And anatin is analytical attenuation. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah. True. <laughs> true. Yeah. So it was basically like, yeah, just being forced to like sit there and like you'd start hallucinating sometimes mm-hmm. and, um, like their face would just start changing and morphing. And like, it was just a strange and, and, and people got through it somehow or another, but I couldn't, but but you know what you say that you remind me, I had the exact same thing doing it when I was a kid, like the morphing and the, like, uh, yeah, just like their eyes become like holes and like, it just, (laughs) I've heard other people talk about this too. And I was like, Oh, holy shit. Like I remember, um, just sitting there. Yeah. Cause you're sitting there just like for hours on end and it's just a crazy experience. But, um, but, but in amongst that, because I couldn't, couldn't get through it, they were like, Oh, they pulled me off, put me on some kind of handling. So I was like, they put me on the e-meter. They were trying to find my over at some withholds. They were trying to, then I would like be in a room writing my transgressions of like, but what I wasn't doing anything. I was literally with other people all the time. I never had yeah. any, pri- not a private moment. And, um, no, I didn't have a pri- private moment in here either because, right. and I was going, I was like psychologically, I was spinning. Like I was, it was not a good, it was very unhealthy. Um, I started to struggle mentally a lot and, um, yeah, it was a crazy time. So yeah, yeah. nearly two years in that system of just like, uh, some people did better than me. I didn't do very, I didn't do well in that situation at all. Yeah. Um, and before yeah. we move off this picture, do you want to yeah. explain what's going on here? 
We okay. talked about this before, but we should touch on it because. Yes, yeah. this is Chinese schooling. So what we would do is someone would hold up a board that has um, lines on there. That's Elrond Hubbard's writings. And you would have to learn it verbatim. So we're all saying it back, but we have to say it back in tone 40, which means with intention um, and, you know, get get that intention across the room. So, yeah, and ask me in unison. Um, yeah, sharp. And uh, yeah, that we were trained to say these things back. Yeah. Over and over and over again, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is my first Sea Org day. I'm 13 years old, and that's wow. me with my brother. He's uh, not yet turned 14. That's how close we are in age. Um, and so, yeah, we're both 13 here, actually. Wow. Um, let me think. Yeah. So... So this is our first seer day. We're swampers. Um, actually, this night um, I become PO3, Petty Officer Third Class, because this is the, again, we're all in the red shirt TTC. Um, you can see this kid in the background here um, is very short. That's a little yep. kid. Um, he's also on the TTC with us. And so we're, yeah. And they're also wearing the swamper. So we've all arrived, did the EPF at the same time, all arrived in the seer at the same time. And, um, and so, yeah, they wanted to, I can't remember, was it our first Sea Org day that, that we got uh, promoted? I think it was because I think they wanted to, you see, we had to have some kind of presence amongst Sea Org members. Mm -hmm. They had to start developing the the ethics presence or whatever, the, you know, auditor presence. Um, so they had to give us some kind of like ranking type thing. Wow. I, I think it happened on our first Sea Org day. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And so, so how did you end up? Um, well, actually, before we do that, um, we're already an hour and 15 minutes in, will you be okay uh, yeah. if we conclude at a certain point coming up here and then we'll do part two of how, how you got out and yeah, everything for that's sure. happened since. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. And so, um, so where would you like, where, where, what's a good ending point uh, for, for today? Do you think? I mean, this might even be a good ending point. Okay. The, yeah. I'm just trying to think what, we don't have any other photos after this, do we? Nope. We covered all the photos. No. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, yeah. And I can even like come back maybe with some other photos. I can have a look um, awesome. of the later part. Yeah. Cause this is sort of the time period. Well, I'll just say, let me just to, to lead it, I guess. Um, yeah. So, so this time period, I'm really trying my best to conform to the Sea Org and I'm obviously going, and I'm also, also struggling with that clearly, as yeah. you can see in my um, training and stuff like that. Um, and I'm struggling mentally and, um, and, but also trying to conform. So it's a real time of like inner turmoil and very, a very introverted time of very much in my head and trying to, you know, why are other people, why can they do it? And I can't, how mm -hmm. can they can pass this drill and all that sort of thing. Eventually I do pass this TR zero because the supervisor set shows me this, um, our Hubbard, um, bulletin and it says, um, there's like this phenomena when you overrun something. And so she was like, Oh, do you think that you've overrun this? And I was like, Oh yeah, that's, yeah, I think that is and inside I was like yes yes that means I'm done with it and she's like okay I'd like to indicate that for you that this was overrun and I'm like oh yeah great so she signed it off on my check sheet and then off I went and the next one after that so then I finished that course and then the next one was um upper end doc TRs and then I just got stuck on that file. but um 
all to say, so I was in the, stuck on this training for a while. Then um, they disperse us out into different organizations, and I get placed into Asher Day. The um, Asho organizations, American St. Hill organizations for Day and Foundation, they are going St. Hill size. So they want to put as many of us as they can into to fill the staff quotas. So yes. I'm placed there. Um, but I'm placed originally there, I'm placed in the TTC. And then I move uh, from there, I get into different posts through my zero career. And we'll talk about that another time, maybe. But, um, but yeah, so then this is this huge change, this breakup of all these kids being separated. And from there, I think those kids started to connect back with, um, some of them did over time connect back with their own personalities, which is what started for me because I, had a little bit more space around me. Um, yeah. I wasn't like in this tight group constantly, although you're still in a very close group in the Sea Org. It wasn't to the degree that it was in the red shirt TDC and I could like a boy. And so there was some freedoms and stuff like that. And then from there, I started to get myself into trouble again. <laughs> so we can <laughs> talk what, about that. <laughs> yes. Well, let's talk about that in part two. And also I'm, I'm dying to hear your journey out and, and how you're doing today, of course. And, yeah. and and thank you so, so much for just taking the time to, I, I think I am completely with you. It is so important to shine a very bright light on the actual, um, what actually took place for kids that were born into the C organization and grew up in this environment and why, in my opinion, it should be, it should be illegal to involve children in situations like this. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And that's a huge thing for me is like, I don't want this to have happened. And then it just gets thrown under the rug. And there right. was a huge risk of that. Um, I was aware of that for quite a while. And there was a need for those stories to come out. Um, and, and they have and they have like, in different ways. Um, but I just want to continue that momentum um, that you know, I think that I want people to remember what the experience of the kids was like. Yes, yes. that's important. Absolutely. Well, thank you so very much uh, for your strength, your courage, your voice. And I will very much look forward to part two. All right. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Claire. Thank Appreciate you. It.